Bonnie, I'm sorry for the dissonance there at the end of that beautiful piece. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you today, uh, open with me to 2 Samuel chapter 8. You can find the passage for the sermon this morning uh, also in your bulletin or on page, I think, 260 of the blue Bibles that are in front of you. It might be a little bit easier to have your Bibles today because I'll be flipping back a few times to 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, but as you find most convenient for yourself. And obviously, by having us turn to uh, this section, we are returning to our series that we were in prior to Christmas of 2 Samuel. Uh, And uh, I just want to give you, just in case you weren't here for it, or since it's been uh, more than a month now since we've been in 2 Samuel, just kind of a reminder of where we are in the story up to this point. So when 2 Samuel begins, David hears of the death of Saul, of King Saul. And he has a period of mourning when he hears about that and offers a song about it that we might call uh, How the Mighty Have Fallen. He, He laments the death of Israel's king, of the anointed one. But then David himself is anointed to be king. Now, he's anointed to be king in particular over Judah, over the southern part of what is the tribal area, the land of Canaan, the part where he's from, Judah. Now, the problem with that is that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, which kind of represented the northern half. So the southern half called Israel, the northern half, uh, sorry, the southern half called Judah, the northern half called Israel. And instead of Israel, the northern half following after David as king, they install one of Saul's children, one of Saul's sons to be king in the northern portion of Israel, the result being that there's warfare, warfare that takes place between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Now, as a result of, uh, of time going by, that warfare taking place and a desire, a, a vision to be reunited, the people do, in fact, at the end of that warfare, come back together and they anoint then at that point David as king over a united kingdom over uh, the tribes in the southern portion and over the tribes in the northern portion as well. From there, what we saw is David establishes the capital of this new unified kingdom to be in Jerusalem. Jerusalem he takes, and it will be the city of David, but also the city of God, Zion, the city of our God, is established. And then uh, in chapter 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into Jerusalem. And there's great celebration uh, of that, though not everybody sees it as positively as David does. Nevertheless, the ark is brought into Jerusalem. And then in chapter 7, what we read there is that David is in Jerusalem. He's in his home, his palace, if you will. And he believes that instead of the ark of the covenant of God dwelling in a tent, it should have some kind of a permanent structure to it, uh, a permanent house in the way that he does. He seeks to build that house himself, and God stops him there. God says, you're not going to build me this house. I'm doing things for you, and it's going to be your son who builds me that house. But in 2 Samuel 7, where we spent a long time together lingering over that, 
we see these incredible then promises that God gives to David and to his line, to his house that will be there. He says that I will establish your house. Uh, He promises to David an heir, and there's a surety given. There is assurance given to him that God will, in fact, do these things. And then as chapter 7 comes to its conclusion, we see David being overwhelmed with wonder, with joy, with thankfulness at all of these things that God has promised to them. And so he prays with thankfulness for uh, the promises, not only to him, but for the people as well. And then he prays that God would actually do what God had said he would do in the first part of that chapter. That then brings us here to this section. And I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 8 for us. This is the word of God. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Megath out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad-Azer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Azer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Azer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barothai, the cities of Hadad-Azer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Azer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he he put the garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites, and David's sons were priests. Did you get all that? There'll be a quiz in just a few moments on all of the names and all of the places and all of the battles uh, that were just given to you. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
It is your word. It is good. It is holy. It is a record of how you have been with your people, how you have provided for your people. Indeed, the places, the names, the particularities of this may to us be somewhat unusual, and yet where we recognize in them the testimony, the testimony that you are there with your people, that you provide your king for your people, that we might be delivered, that your kingdom might be established in this world. And so we give you thanks. We give you thanks for it. And we pray that today, as we look at this, that we would see Jesus, the king of kings, our kings, our king, and the kingdom that he has established, and that we would rejoice in him and serve him. And we pray this all for his sake and in his name. Amen. All right, I titled the sermon today, The Battle is the Lord's, So Fight. The Battle is the Lord's, So Fight. And I borrowed those words, at least some of those words, and the theme from 1 Samuel because they fit so perfectly with chapter 8 here in 2 Samuel as well. Recall, for example, in 1 Samuel, and you don't need to turn there for this, but recall, for example, when Jonathan, the son of Saul and his armor bearer, are confronted uh, by a garrison of Philistine soldiers, and Jonathan says this, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Nothing stops that. And, and that's captured, that spirit is captured in our text as well. But even more particularly, at least for the title itself, are the words of David when he is fighting Goliath. If you recall the story, Goliath had just uh, mocked both David and Israel. And David responds with these words from chapter 17. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And continuing, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Two pillars from those two men. The first pillar is the Lord saves. You can say it however you, you can say the Lord saves. You can say the Lord delivers. Both of those men confess the exact same thing. It is the Lord who saves. And then the battle is the Lord's. Both of those things are essentially saying exactly the same thing, those two things. And those themes are on display in 2 Samuel chapter 8 as well. Did you catch the refrain that was in the passage as I read it for us. It was probably easy to miss because of all of the details that were there. But the refrain of this chapter, the heart of this chapter, can be found in verse 6 and then repeated in verse 14 as well. In verse 6, we read this, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And in verse 14, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Gave victory translated here as gave victory, it is exactly the same word as save. It is exactly the same word as deliver. The Lord saved, the Lord delivered, the Lord granted the victory. It's exactly what we have seen before and we see it here again. So say it how you like, 
Salvation is of the Lord. Victory is of the Lord. Deliverance is of the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. What I hope is that we can fix that. We can fix that firmly in our minds today. That, that's number one. If you forget everything else from the sermon, remember that the battle is the Lord's. But when you fix that in your mind, then we are enabled, I think, to see something else that is very evident in these texts as well. For both Jonathan and for David, for David as he comes to this position as king in uh, 2 Samuel 8 and then all the way back into his confrontation with Goliath as well. For Jonathan and for David, the conviction that God himself saves didn't lead them to say something like, well then, all right, if God saves, if the battle belongs to the Lord, I I guess I'll sit this one out. I, I guess God doesn't need me in this one. God is going to do what God is going to do. So may it be, let the sovereign and perfect will of God be done through whoever he wants to do it through. They didn't say that. David, in 2 Samuel 8, in 7, he had just received some of the most extraordinary promises that have ever been given. God said, and I won't, I'm going to go through them in a few minutes, but not right now. God said to him, essentially, I will, and then God filled in all sorts of things. This is what I would do. I would do this, I would do this, I will do this, I will do it. Not you, you're not the house builder, I'm the house builder. I will do these things. The fact that God will do those things, the fact that God will fight, doesn't deflate David's drive. It doesn't sap his motivation. It doesn't alleviate in any way his apprehension of responsibility that belongs to him. Instead, what it does for him is it puts wind in his sails. It emboldens his resolve. It kindles the fires within him, kindles his zeal. And maybe just the the simplest expression of that that we can give uh, is actually found again in that Goliath passage where I stopped the reading. When, When Goliath then comes into the battle, what do we read next? And David ran toward the battle line. And David ran toward the battle line. In in that story, it's one on one, right? Man versus man in that story. Here, David runs towards the battle line. David and all of the foot soldiers of Israel with him. David isn't by himself anymore. He's got the armies. The united armies of Israel are with him as well. Now, I want to ruminate on that dynamic today. I want to ruminate on this dynamic that the battle belongs to the Lord, so fight, so fight. However, lest we go astray, and it would be very easy to go astray with a text like this and with a message like that, we need to have a grasp of this passage and keep a couple of things in mind. So remember the dynamic, remember that, I'll call it attention here for just a moment, and we'll come back to it. But the first thing that we need to keep in mind is the covenantal connection that is on display between the chapter that I just read for us, chapter 8, and the covenant promises that were made in chapter 7. There's a very clear connection between those two things. That's why they're put right next to each other so that there's no way you can miss 
the connection between the two chapters. Now, in one sense, you can really understand all of the rest of Israel's history from 2 Samuel chapter 7, but at least chapter 8 is putting that right up together so that we can understand it and see it. They are intentionally together. Chapter 8 is the immediate or the near term or the proximate fulfillment of chapter 7. Now, I know not all of you were with us when we talked about this assurity given uh, in chapter 7. But one of the ways that God provides assurance for the promises that are made in chapter 7 is by giving David near-term, proximate fulfillment of promises that are listed as forever promises. Because what happens in chapter 7 is you get all of these forever promises. Your throne will endure forever. Your son will endure forever. Your kingdom will endure forever. Well, how do you know what forever is going to be? How do you you live in forever as a man in space and time? And the answer is the surety is I'm going to give you proximate fulfillment of these things so that you believe in the greater forever fulfillment of these things. Okay, so that's the dynamic that we see at play in this. So having said that, let me, let me now read for us. If you've got your Bible, you can flip back to uh, chapter 7. Let me read verses 9 through 11. Hear them in light of what we just read in chapter 8. And I, this is the Lord speaking, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. God says, I have cut off all of your enemies, and I will cut off all of your enemies. God says, I will prepare and I will secure a place for my people. There's a particular place I am securing for them. And in that place, I will plant them in that place. And God says, in that place, I will give them rest. I will give them rest. I'll give them rest from all of their enemies. I will give people rest. These victories, okay, chapter eight page separation in my Bible. These victories that we see described for us in such detail in chapter 8 are a way of saying to us, look, this is what God has done. God promised to do this in chapter 7, and in chapter 8, that's exactly what we see taking place. God has fulfilled these promises. Now, these are right next to each other, but as we noted in all of the time that we spent in 2 Samuel chapter 7, these promises that God has made and is making to David, these are are monumental promises. These are eternal promises. These are forever promises that are made here, and they actually don't come out of thin air. The, The, if you will, the lens of the immediate That is to say, what takes place in chapter 8, these victories. The lens of the immediate is not wide enough to capture the promise and the fulfillment that is embedded in the very words of chapter 7 as well. Everybody, David and 
everybody else in the scriptures who reflects on Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 sees how wide and how broad these promises actually are. So, so you've got 7 and 8 right next to each other. But now, let's go a little bit further back, and then we'll go a little bit further forward as well. Because what we would see if we went a little bit further back is that the promise that God would provide a place for his people, that he would defeat the enemies of his people, that he would provide rest for his people, it actually doesn't start in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That same thing is told to Moses. It's executed through Joshua as they come into the land, as Joshua leads the people in victory over the land. It's executed in Moses and in jo- through Joshua and then through David as well. But then when you come to the New Testament, when you come to the New Testament, so that's going back in time, now let's go forward in time. When you come to the New Testament, you realize and you hear directly from the New Testament that neither Joshua nor David would fully be able to defeat those enemies, to provide that place, and to give that kind of rest. And so, the son, the Davidic son, the son Jesus Christ, who comes into this world, says of himself, in me, you will find what? Rest for your souls. The Davidic son who comes into the world says, I am going to prepare a place for you. There's a place where I will plant you. You'll be in that place for all eternity. And of this Davidic son, and we could read it from his lips as well, but of this Davidic son, we read this, and this is the, uh, the last verse of our promise of forgiveness that we said this morning. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, the record of debt against us. He, that is Jesus or God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In him. There's a deliverance that Jesus has accomplished that neither Joshua nor David could give, a rest that they couldn't give as well. So you've got seven and eight right next to each other, but that's not enough perspective. You've got to go back. You've got to go back to Moses and Joshua. You've got to go forward to the New Testament to understand what's happening here as well. But the reality is that going back to Moses and Joshua is not going back far enough. You have to go back further. You have to go back to understand what is taking place here to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15 is a covenant made with Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 15, we read at the end of that chapter this, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That's the promise. That's the promise. And so what's taking place in 2 Samuel chapter 8 is a fulfillment of what was just prophesied in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it is a fulfillment of what was prophesied 500 years before to Moses and then executed by Joshua. And it is actually the fulfillment of a promise that's more than a thousand years old because it was given to Abraham itself. Now, that's all well and good. Now take it further forward. Because what happens when you take it further forward is that we read in the book of Hebrews, 
that when Abraham heard these promises about this land that had been given to him, he didn't think that the promises would be exhaustively fulfilled by inhabiting the land that God had just marked out, the ones very carefully described with all of its borders. Abraham saw that. That would be temporary fulfillment. That would be a fulfillment of these things, but it would not exhaust the fulfillment of these promises that God had made. Instead, Abraham was looking for, as it's recorded in Hebrews, a better country, a heavenly city, a heavenly country, which is where, as it's written in Jesus and with Jesus, we will have eternal place, a place where we are planted, where we will have eternal rest in the Lord, and where all of the enemies will be finally fully defeated and brought out of that place. We will have peace and security. And so this chapter, what I just read for us, chapter 8, a mouthful to be sure, um, this chapter is part of the continuum of the grand work of God, this fulfillment, this anticipation, this grand covenantal work that God has been promising and fulfilling throughout Scripture. That's how to understand chapter 8. It's the covenant connection. Now, one other thing to keep in mind, and that is that chapter 8 is part of developing for us a picture, an image of the kingdom of God. This is, as others have said before me, this is the kingdom coming into the world, right? We prayed in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. This is the kingdom of God coming into the world. Now, under Saul and David initially, we have rather foundering and fragmented pieces of the kingdom. But when you look at this, when you look at at this section of Scripture, kind of from chapter 5 where David has been anointed and takes Jerusalem on through chapter 10 as well, the pieces of the kingdom are coming together in accord with the promise that God just made in chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 16, God said this, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. David heard that, and David prayed in the end of chapter 7, Lord, make this certain. Do what you've said you were going to do. You have promised to your servant incredible blessings here, Lord. With humility, I ask you to do what you've said. Chapter 8 is God saying, you got it. Here you go. Here you go. Here, David, is the evidence. Here is the proof. Here is the fulfillment. I do what I said I was going to do, and I'm doing it for you, and you can see it right in front of you. Now, make no mistake. When we look at this chapter, when we see these things, the kingdom here at this moment is in its nascent, in its rudimentary form. It's not final. It's final, its most glorious form, isn't even with the church right now. You don't want this to be the final form of the kingdom, do you? (laughs) You don't want the current state of your heart, your relationships, your worship to be the final state of the kingdom, I trust. The final, the glorious state of this kingdom awaits the return of the king. 
the return of the king, the final defeat of all of the enemies, the establishment. So we're waiting the finality of the kingdom from the new heavens and the new earth. But even at this stage, even at this stage now in our own lives and at this stage here in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we can see, if you will, kingdom characteristics, kingdom qualities are being evidenced here. Let me give some examples of that. Through the reign of the king, and this is now drawing from chapter 8, we see that the kingdom is a victorious kingdom. I talked about the refrain before that the Lord gave the victory to David. How many times do you read in this chapter, David defeated? David defeated, David defeated, David defeated, David defeated, David defeated. I think it is actually five times. They're separated a little bit more than I just did, but they're there. It's a victorious kingdom. It is a powerful kingdom. Insofar as the king of this kingdom follows after the Lord, the king of kings, then this is a blessed, powerful, victorious kingdom. As it moves through scripture, we will anticipate an unshakable kingdom. And the Lord Jesus will usher in the unshakable kingdom. So it's a powerful, victorious kingdom. The kingdom is also a place of justice and equity a place where the wicked are punished and where faithful servants are appreciated, honored, rewarded, and deployed. So David reigned over all Israel. This is verse 15. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Now, It's in an early form, and when we listen to this chapter, when we hear this chapter, we might go, is this just? Is this actually what's happening here? The answer is yes. Yes. These aren't nice people, good people that David is just beating up on. These are wicked people. These are the enemies of God. And though they're distant from us, so we don't feel the weight of their evil, of their wickedness, of their persecution, of their attacks upon the people of God, we would have if we lived then. When, when Ukrainians hear of Russian forces being destroyed, you think they go, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that. No, they rejoice in the justice being meted out, in the equity of that. And this kingdom is a place where justice and equity are meted out. That's the way Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus rules his people. That's the way David rules his people as well. Psalm 72, which we opened our worship service with this. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. This kingdom is also a place of security. It's a place where, as the, as the various areas, the, as the, these border countries are secured, David deploys garrisons in them to make sure that this is a fortified country, that this is a well-protected country. Uh, one of the Psalms rejoices It's or praise for Jerusalem. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. There are borders that are established so that you know who's in the kingdom, who's not in the kingdom. And that's a secure place wherein the people of God can dwell. It's a place of blessing. The kingdom then is also an extension into the world of the grace of God. 
It is the establishment of this kingdom is an opportunity, it affords an opportunity for the kings of the earth to come and kiss the anointed son. That's language that I'm borrowing from Psalm 2. It's on the front of your bulletin. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. The establishment of this kingdom in this place allows kings the opportunity to do exactly that to see the blessing, to see the favor, to see the grace, and to approach the king and to come before the king that God has established on earth seeking his favor. Now, it's in a small form, again, a nascent small form, but listen to verse 10 and what takes place there. Did you notice this? Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him. (laughs) It's a really interesting little statement to ask about your health. David, how are you doing? He just sent his son to say, how is your health? Well, what he's doing is it's, a, it's this little picture for us of how one of the kings is supposed to respond to David. There's an offer that is extended. Kiss the son. The establishment of this kingdom is the opportunity for the nations to come to this kingdom. For them to, in this kingdom, find justice and peace, the word of the Lord. It's a precursor. This, this Joram, son of Toy, coming, is a precursor. It's a precursor to these magi who come at the appearance of the king. Uh, I know we don't follow the church calendar carefully and, and that's fine, That's as it should be perhaps, in, at least in all of its details. But in large forms and outlines, we do to some extent remember Christmas. Today is Epiphany. Now, nah, we're Presbyterians. We probably don't even know what Epiphany is or what Epiphany means. Maybe if you were Catholic or, or you grew up Lutheran or if you grew up Episcopalian, you do. Epiphany, the appearing. Epiphany is the story of the wise men. It is the story of these magi coming when Christ appears. And now, all of a sudden, we get this picture of the kings of the earth approaching the one who has come into the world. And this king is the one who, as a man then, at the outset of his ministry, says to all of the peoples of the earth, all of the peoples of the world, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The king comes and in his presence, he is saying to the world, the opportunity is here. The call is here. The offer is extended to you. All peoples of the earth, all kings of the earth, come. Hear the good news. Believe the good news. This kingdom, as it's described in chapter 8, is a glorious, precious kingdom. Tribute is brought. Bronze and silver and gold. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. These things are brought to the king. They're given to the king. It's a glorious kingdom. The kingdom 
as it's presented to us in chapter 8, is a theocentric, a God-centered kingdom. That tribute isn't merely used to ordain David's house. Instead, as it is written clearly, David takes all of the tribute that is gathered or brought from the nations, and he dedicates it to the Lord. The Magi come, and they bring these gifts, and they bow down, and they worship. It's a doxological kingdom. It is a kingdom wherein praise and worship to the great king goes up. Chapters 8 and 9 are early iterations of the kingdom. To be sure, they are not final. But just as surely, in a dark and wicked and brutal world, Jerusalem and Israel, under the king, was an outpost of the shalom of God and of the God of shalom. We live in a different covenantal epoch in which King Jesus has established his kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit over all of the earth. But we recognize the qualities, the character of this kingdom in, if you will, these kind of old family photos that we find here in 2 Samuel chapter 8. So keep in mind, then, the covenantal connections and the kingdom characteristics. But now let me go back to the beginning. The battle is the Lord's, so fight. Now, when we say as Christians that the battle is the Lord, we are confessing two things. First of all, we need a champion. We need a king. We are in need of salvation. We are in need of the son of David, of the Davidic king, of David's Lord. We're confessing that we need that. We need the salvation that can be brought only by the Davidic king. And we're confessing not only that we need it, we are confessing that we have this salvation as a gift because King Jesus, in his conflict with and his victory over sin, death, and devil has made us safe and secure from all alarms, from all of our foes. In addition, in addition, King Jesus is the only one who will build his church, who will bring his kingdom. He will do it. That is the promise that we have in chapter 7. It is and is being fulfilled in Jesus. Chapter 8 helps us to see that these magnificent covenant promises are to be worked out, lived out, lived in. These promises that we spent so much time on in chapter 7 are to be worn, are to be put on by the people of God as the armor of God, to put on each one of those promises, oops, sorry about that, each one of those promises to wear them, to inhabit as the people of God these promises with all of our many names and gifts and places and stations. Try this. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is like coming to church, coming to worship with God's people on a Sunday. 2 Samuel chapter 8, that's going to work on a Monday. 2 Samuel chapter 7, in all of its glory, is like a wedding ceremony. 
It's beautiful. It's glorious. You want to spend time there. You want to smile. You want to delight in it. You want to enjoy it. Who doesn't love it? The beauty, the majesty, the pageantry of it. Second Samuel chapter 8 is marriage. It's living in it. It's working it out. It's living out the glory of what took place in a wedding ceremony. David and Israel are fully engaged in battles in which they are fully convinced that it is God who gives the victory. The covenant promises, grand and glorious as they are, are not merely ornamental, they're functional. They're not merely commemorative, they're vital, and they're not static, they are in fact dynamic. The covenant promises are the parent in the pool speaking to the child who's on the edge and saying, jump, jump, I got you. You're safe, secure, secure. nothing will happen. I've got you. Come on in and swim with me. For the kingdom, it is a call to the people of God to fight. Now, I've said it before, and I don't want to belabor the point this morning. Our warfare is different than the warfare that took place in 2 Samuel chapter 8. We know that. Our weapons are different. But the spirit that animates 2 Samuel chapter 8, the spirit that the battle is the Lord's and so fight, is the same exact spirit that animates us in our warfare, our spiritual warfare as well, as we seek by the grace of God, by the power of the spirit at work within us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, to obedience to Christ. And so I ask us this morning, Are you engaged in the fight? Do you need to be re-engaged in the fight? As part of the kingdom of God, are you engaged? Have you, somewhere along the way, have I, somewhere along the way, become a spiritual Christian pacifist, thinking that I'm on vacation right now, I'm on, a, I'm on a break right now. I want to I cruise into things as best I can. Within the place that God has stationed us is our call, is our call to exhibit the kingdom of God. Ralph Davis, whom I've quoted enough times, you know I love uh, Ralph Davis. After clarifying that God alone will bring the kingdom through his son, he says this, but you can exemplify the kingdom in whatever offices God has placed you. Example, the office of elder, father, mother, employer, employee, so on. We ought be planting kingdom righteousness in our own present plots, in whatever relationships or capacities we do have. Your task is not to leave doing what is just and right to David, but to peel off that kingdom ideal, what we call that kingdom characteristic or quality, peel off that kingdom ideal and stick it over the circumstances of your own life. You must be doing what is just and right for all your people. Dick Phillips on this passage writes this, like David, believers today are to represent the cause of Christ in the world so that people see it. Toy saw it. He saw it. And he sent his son to make peace with David. Now, mind you, 
that Toy is the only one that we have as an example who did that. People, when they see you living out the values of the kingdom, the truth of the kingdom in your lives, they're not going to like it. They're not going to say, oh, he's so great. I just, I just really love her. She's just a, a super person. They don't like it. The darkness doesn't like the light. Conflict, right? If you're, if you're going to be engaged in the battle, you're going to have conflict. There's, there's not a way around this. You can't nice your way out of conflict. The kingdom comes through the conflict. If you have any question about that, see birth of Jesus and what took place with Herod. See death of Jesus and you'll see the conflict that is there for the king and for the foot soldiers who are part of the kingdom. Covenant life is a dynamic life. But remember this, the battle is the Lord's, so fight. Lord, we pray that you would help us in whatever the sphere is, whatever the station is that you've placed us in our lives to exhibit the character, the qualities of the kingdom. And we pray that while we know there are those who will resist that, who will ignore it, we pray that you would use even this to draw some, like Toy and Joram, to yourself. We pray that you would do that for us. We pray that you would do it for your church that is distributed around this world. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.